Good morning, Cross Point. Hope you guys are doing well. Children, you can be released for Children's Church. And if the rest would turn with me to the book of Obadiah. Not for sure the last time you heard that on a Sunday morning to open up to the book of Obadiah. If you're having trouble finding it, it may be because it is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only 21 uh, verses long and the pages may be stuck together. You'll find it after Amos and before Jonah. And it was one of these books that like, we're going through a different book each week. We're going through the minor prophets. But if you remember, they're minor not because they're less significant than the other prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but simply because the books are shorter. But oftentimes what happens is these books can be overlooked, misunderstood. And, and Obadiah is no different. It's one of those books that even for me, last Sunday I was reading this and even just preparing uh, my heart for today's message. And I'm like, what in the world am I going to preach on Obadiah? Right? It just sounds like an old man's name every time I say it, like good old Obadiah. Right? Like, and I'm like, but the more I've marinated in it, it's stood out. Now, let me give you a little bit of background because Obadiah is unique in a way. Like the other prophets are talking to, to the northern or southern kingdoms of, of Israel, right? But Obadiah is different because actually the northern and the southern kingdom are now gone. The northern kingdom, as we've heard, has already been taken into captivity by Assyria. The southern kingdom is now in exile in Babylon, right? Jerusalem has been pillaged. The city is burned to the ground, the temple destroyed. The, the settlements around Jerusalem have been destroyed. You can read about all, all of this in 2 Kings chapter 24. And God allowed this to happen. It, it was really loving discipline of why God allowed these things to occur. Because Israel had been disobedient to God, and so he had warned them, if you continue in disobedience, you will be led off. But this wasn't just in judgment and destruction. This was ultimately in a loving discipline to draw their hearts back to himself. And he said there would be some who do return to not just the land, but to the heart of God, to repentance, to forgiveness. This was God's heart. And I think this is important because what we're going to see in Obadiah, and we see right here in, in verse 1, is that it says that it was ultimately that uh, this is what the Lord has said about Edom. About Edom. So this isn't about Israel. This is about someone else. This is about one of the neighboring countries to Israel that's kind of to the southeast of Israel, but they're more than just a neighbor. They're actually family. If you remember, and this is just kind of a bit of history and background, you remember Abraham, God called Abraham, said, from you, I'm going to make a great nation as numerous as the, the stars in the sky. And Abraham had a son, Isaac, and then Isaac had twins, Esau and Jacob. And that these brothers didn't get along. Even when Rebecca is pregnant with them, she was in such pain during the pregnancy because they're fighting inside the womb. Like, you know, it's going to be hard parenting these guys when they can't even get along inside. Right. And she's crying out to the Lord, like, what is happening? Why in the world is this so painful? And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. This is in Genesis 25. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. 
these two nations. Esau was born first, but he was the weaker, and though he should have been the one to receive the blessing, it was ultimately Jacob to whom God had chosen. Jacob became Israel, and Esau became Eden, Edom. Now, Edom means red, both because out of Esau being meaning red, he had red hair, and then because of the red mountains. This is modern-day Petra. So I took these pictures, Silas, I forgot to ask for permission. I set him up on the edge uh, here. He was safer than it may appear, trust me, on this. Kirsten was nowhere near when I took this picture. But I kind of wanted to have this side. So you could kind of see the mountains. Now, the, the temple and what we classically know as Petra was built in the peoples that took over Edom. But this was the area. These are the red mountains that they hewn homes inside these mountains. This is important that we're going to hear about in the first. I just want you to have a visual understanding of where we were talking about because in Obadiah, I want you to imagine your child being dropped off at school, right? You've done something wrong and your parents are disciplining you as they drop you off from school. There's embarrassment, there's shame. Your bully sees this and now thinks, well, let's just kick him while he's down to beat you up and take your lunch money, right? And so this becomes your day. And it's like, does anybody care? Does anybody see this? But to make it even worse, what if that bully was your brother? What if that bully was someone who was family, who has kind of seen what's happening in the home? This is what God is speaking to. He's speaking to this nation that is functioning like a bully, that is abusing those who are down, that yes, God was judging Israel, but they do some things here out of pride, thinking themselves better. And what we're going to see is that as brothers, it's going to speak about nations. And then partway through, halfway through this book, it's going to talk about humanity in general. And I want, as we go through this, for you to think about two sides of this. Some of you would be on the side of feeling that, like, I'm being kicked while I'm down. Does God see this? Does he care? Like, maybe I've brought some of it on my own. Maybe I haven't. But is any of this seen? Others are in a position of pride. And this is where Edom was. It's a position of pride of like, they thought certain things about themselves that caused them to mistreat their brother, to cause them to mistreat other nations. I think this has both a personal and a collective application for us this morning. <clears throat> Meaning some of us have roots of pride and as a country, there are roots of pride that we should consider. What are the sources of that pride and how is that causing us to treat others? And how does God see that? Where is our hope? And so I want you to, to look with me. Beginning in verse 3. Notice it says, your arrogant heart has deceived you. This is where I'm getting, like, what are these roots of pride? He's going to list out several things here that were sources of pride. Things that fed the pride of Edom against Israel. The first is their position of security. Your arrogant heart has deceived you. It's that question, in what ways has arrogance deceived our hearts? In what ways have we unknowingly been deceived 
by our own arrogance. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? It's a nation who thought themselves untouchable. They thought themselves, look, our our homes are built in the mountains. Who can climb these mountains? Who can traverse the valleys to reach us? Our military is untouchable. We are the most powerful nation in the world, and no one can bring us down. We can do as we please, or so they thought. But in verse 4, it says, Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, though you think yourself so high, so lofty, so above reproach, even from there I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. This should be humbling. We can think ourselves untouchable. Maybe it's as, as a nation because we think of our own military might. Maybe it's personally because of a, a job title, our influence, recognition. We think ourselves above God's judgment. But God said there is no height to which we can climb, no strength, no security that we can pursue in and of ourselves that makes us untouchable to God. That should not be a source of pride in our life, nor should our wealth. That the amount of money that we have in our bank account is not our security. Obadiah 5 and 6, if thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be. Wouldn't they steal only what they wanted, we may think? If grape harvesters came to you, wouldn't they leave a few grapes? How Esau will be pillaged his hidden treasures searched out. See, they thought that their bank accounts would save them. Have you ever felt this way? Like, personally, like we have an emergency fund. You're supposed to have a certain amount in the emergency fund, and then something happens, and the emergency fund hits zero, and then you build it back up, and then it hits zero again, and you're just like, we can feel safe when we have a certain amount in reserve. Like, okay, we can plan for calamity, And as long as I have this amount, everything will be fine. But that that became a source of pride for a nation. And it can become a source of pride of our own. Like, I can weather this on my own. Like, I don't need God as long as I have this amount in savings. But it's not true. That's not the reality. And this is what this is saying. If you're like, why is this talking about grapes and harvesters and all that? Because in the Old Testament, what it said is that when you're harvesting grapes, you always leave a little bit behind so that the widow and and, and that the foreigner can kind of come behind and glean. And it's like, they're not even going to do that. They're going to take every single last penny. There won't be a single grape left for you. Everything will be gone. You put your hope and money, it will all be destroyed. It is a worthless place to place our hope. But oh, what about our friends? What about those who are our allies, our coalition forces? Won't they stand behind us? Obadiah 7, everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. He will be unaware of it. See, Edom thought that that they had friends, that they had allies. Like, there's people who care about our interests. But in reality, allies don't care about their interests. They only cared about their own good. 
And as soon as there was a sign of weakness, all those allies, all those friends who once supported turned. We see it all the time. Don't we think about it? Movie stars, pop stars, social media influencers, the fans, the followers, the millions of people. But one thing goes wrong. And those same fans that cheered now consume the reputation of that artist. This is why we have tabloids still lining the grocery store aisle. We love to see the, the underdog rise to victory, but as soon as they're there for too long, we love to watch them fall. Because it somehow justifies our own sadness. The, the people who place their hope, their pride, and look how many people follow me, look how many people listen to me, those same people will turn in time. Those who eat bread at your table will set a trap for you. Another area of pride, wisdom. Our own wisdom. Verse 8, in that day, this is the Lord's declaration. Will I not eliminate the wise ones from Eden, Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? These are the, the experts. This is the, the chief of staff. This is the generals around the, the, the war room table. These are the ones who have degrees and accolades and the ones who we follow and listen to. These are our experts that have no God-fearing common sense. And it says you put your hope in them. You put your trust in them. This is a source of pride for you. I'm going to bring all of your wise men low. And finally, not only was it the wealth, not only was it the wisdom, but it was also their warriors, their armies. In verse 9, Taman, your warriors will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by slaughter. Terrified. What do they have left to hope in? All these sources of pride that Edom have, it just starts in. Obadiah just starts in on them, this neighboring country. But how did this play out? It wasn't just because they were prideful, though that alone would have been worthy, but that pride caused them to live a particular way toward Israel. And this is what we begin to see in the fruits of pride. And, and this is, is the question I want us to consider. Like, what feeds our prideful disobedience? Because we can be prideful, right? Like we're not only the victim here. We're not only in the picture of like, oh man, I'm being kicked while I'm down by these other bullies. Like we ourselves can be prideful. And when I examine in my own heart, like what is a source of pride in my own life that causes me to be disobedient? I didn't want to ask that question without answering it myself. For me, sometimes it's not necessarily those listed here, but it's God's mercy Here's what I mean. I can think, oh, I'm forgiven. Oh, d does it matter if I lose my patience? D does it matter? Like, oh, this sin's going to be forgiven. And so I assume God's mercy and willfully walk in sin. Have you ever done that? It's a source of pride, isn't it? Like pride can well up in our hearts that causes us to be disobedient to God. And this will take fruit in our lives. And this is what we see in the nation of, of Edom. We see this fruit of pride. 
in verses 10 through 14. So if you look at like 1 through 9, if you're taking notes and in your Bible, because if you ever come back to Obadiah, you're going to be like, what in the world is this book about? You can look at this first part and say, okay, these are some of the sources of pride that we see here in 10 through 14. This is the way that pride showed itself in how it treated others. The first is in verse 10 through really family neglect, just ignoring the needs. Verse 10, you will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother Jacob. See, have you ever, trying to think how to say this, have you ever seen like when, you, when there's a lot of kids and like sometimes just two of them don't get along and they think they can like treat each other a certain way because they're fighting and they're different or they think they have different personalities but they really have the same kind of personality and they're fighting and they excuse that and it's like, look, this is your brother. This person that you're against, this person that you have pride against, this is your brother, Jacob. You've forgotten that in your pride, thinking yourself so much better. You've forgotten that you're actually family. But that has somehow slipped your mind because in your arrogance, you've thought yourself so much different, so much better than someone else. And it led them to this callous non-involvement. It, it led them that while their brother was getting beaten up, while their brother was suffering, they just stood by and been like, it's not my problem. This is what it says in verse 11. On the day, meaning on the day when Jerusalem was destroyed, when the city was laid to waste, when the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem pillaged on the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers captured his wealth while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like just one of them. You did nothing. You just stood by and watched, seeing injustice and yet somehow thinking yourselves better because, well, they brought it on themselves. Not my problem. Watching as they were taken advantage of, not doing anything, standing in the background. But it was, it was worse than this. Because here's the thing, not only in pride, and, and let's be honest, we see this in our culture, don't we? Like, start making connections here. Somebody else suffers, but they brought it on themselves. Not my problem. Let's blame them. And we stand and we watch with the callous non-involvement, standing aloof. But more than that, more than just this callous non-involvement, it was also this malicious gloating. They didn't just stand there and watch. They snickered and laughed. Like, <laughs> look, at, look at how weak they are. Look at what they're bringing on themselves. Verse 12. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. God was bringing judgment on Israel. He allowed it. He said it was going to happen. And as 
God is fulfilling this. Edom's over here, a brother laughing and joking about it. <laughs> Look at what's happening to them. It's the sibling who laughs while you're getting the, the punishment. This is what God is speaking to. And he's saying, you think yourselves better. Why are you laughing? Why are you gloating? And it led ultimately to a ruthless exploitation. Verses 13 and 14. Do not enter my people's city gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you, you do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster and do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disasters. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives. Do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. Do you see what's happening? They, they began to exploit Israel when, when God was punishing them. When he allowed that to happen, they stood back, they watched, they laughed, and then as people were fleeing the danger, they stood in their way, preventing them from fleeing so that they would be taken into captivity. And then while they were down, it's like watching your brother get beat up, reached in and stole his wallet. They exploited them for their own gain. They watched. And we're like, this is crazy. Who would do that? Like, this would never happen today, right? But what about the refugee? What about the immigrant? A fellow human, a brother and sister fleeing a national bully, beaten up. Not my problem. The malicious gloating I see in our neighborhood thread online. Why don't they just learn English? The ruthless exploitation. Did you know that Orlando is, ranks as the third highest city in America for human trafficking? Exploiting those who are weak and vulnerable in labor trafficking, in sex trafficking, and that half of those are between the ages of 12 and 14. But at least it doesn't happen today. There's a source of pride in all of us that can cause us to turn a blind eye, that makes us think it's not my problem it's not mine to deal with. And Obadiah is a judgment to that kind of thinking. It's not to the one who did wrong, it's to the one who did nothing. And in doing nothing did wrong. And then it brings this judgment. And it's in verse 15. And I want us to see it because verse 15 in many ways is this centerpiece between two halves of the book of Obadiah. See, the first half, and what we've talked about, is specifically about Edom as a nation, these, this nation that came from brothers, Jacob and Esau. But in 15, we see this change happening, saying, for the day of the Lord is near. We've talked about this, right? This statement of the day of the Lord is this day of judgment and this day of blessing. Judgment for those who oppose God and a day of blessing who find shelter in God. And it says, 
for the day of the Lord is near against all nations. Now we've just pivoted. Now we're not just talking about Edom. We're talking about all nations. And we even see this grammatically from the first half of the book to the second half of the book because we see every time it uses the word you, like you've done this, or in this case, as you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. You is singular in the first half of the book and is now plural in the second half of the book. And here's why I think it's important. Because when it comes to application, this isn't just saying, well, this is just Edom's situation. This isn't ours. This is now talking about Edom is this picture of humanity as a whole. And what is being compared and contrasted here is not just for history. It is for us today. It is a reality and appropriate for us to apply today. That is going to be true of all nations, of all peoples, including us this morning. And there's this growing impact then that happens of the war that was happening in the womb then took place in nations. And what we saw happening in nations happens among all peoples in humanity. And there is this call then in verse 17, this shift. But there will be deliverance on Mount Zion and it will be holy. There is this picture, this hope of will you trust in, in Edom is going to represent Mount Esau is what it's going to be called. And then there is the mountain of God. There is the mountain of man and pride and rebellion. And then there is the mountain of God, the mountain of Zion. And throughout scripture, the mountain of God, the mountain of Zion has also come to mean God's eternal heavenly Dwelling. We see this in Isaiah 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains. Do you see what's happening here? This is how Mount Zion would have been understood in the Jewish mindset coming out of Isaiah. Compared to the high mountains of security that was for Edom. Look at our security. Look at our mountain, the mountain of man, our wisdom, our wealth, our security. Who can come against us? But it says the mountain of God. At the top of the mountains will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of of the God of Jacob. He will teach us in his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And then in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, instead, instead you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gatherings. What I want us to see is there are two ways that are laid out for us. One is the mountain of man that is like Edom, that is pride, that is going to lead us to hurt one another, to place ourselves above one another. And then there is the mountain of God that we're called to return to, to seek shelter in. In verses 17 and 18, we see that on the mountain of God is our deliverance. God will deliver. The ESV says, there shall be those who escape. 
It's a city of refuge where the alien, the foreigner, the sojourner comes for safety and deliverance to the weary traveler in life to come and find safety and rest. It is a place of unity among the nations at the mountain of God. It will never be in the mountain of men. We see it play out in the news. Like I read the, the stories of nation against nation. Who thinks that this is going to lead to nuclear war? What kind of catastrophe awaits us next? We see that playing out, don't we? How then do we interpret that? How then do we view that as Christians? Except to say our hope is not in the wise men of today. Our hope is not in the security of wisdom or wealth or having the most powerful army in the world. Our hope is in God, whose kingdom is eternal, who will be king forever and ever, who is our deliverance. He is our victory, we see in verses 19 and 20. To possess their possessions. There's victory in the mountain of God. As we'll hear in the future, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says this, then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David, in the residence of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. And then in 13.1, it says, On that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. See, on the mountain of God, there's deliverance. There's security. This is speaking of Christ. Right? Like it's clear as day, the one whom they have pierced, from whom there will be purity. When there isn't pride, but there's humility in who God is and what he has done because God is establishing his kingdom. This is how the book ends. Look at these final words. The kingdom will be the Lord's. This is what I want ringing in our ears this morning. Whether you're the one who's been kicked and beat down whether you're the bully who's full of pride for whatever reason, there is an invitation to find our safety and rest in the mountain of God. That the kingdom belongs to him. It is his. And in many ways, the rest of scripture speaks to this truth. In one commentary on the minor prophets, it said this, this is the bottom line of all history. The struggles between Mount Zion and Mount Esau, between the world and the church, they all fade from the prophet's view. He sees the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of God, ultimately triumphant, surviving all the powers which have tried to destroy her. These words are the polar star to guide God's people through whatever dark days may arise. 
See, don't look over this too quick. The kingdom will be the Lord's. I think that's the hope for us this morning. In the midst of the news, in the midst of the uncertainty, like I just had an eye appointment on Friday. Right? And we got talking, and then we got talking about the gospel and faith, and then he's like, you're a pastor. He's like, do you think these are the end days? Like, it's on people's minds. And I said, yes. My only hesitation in saying that is every generation before us has also said yes. And I'm aware of that. So I don't know. I'm submitting my yes with some humility, and time will tell. But there is this longing of a question, isn't it? Like, man, things are broken. Life hurts. Does God care? Does he see it? The kingdom will be the Lord's. And I want us to just, for a moment, consider how this message encouraged believers before us throughout history that we may be encouraged as we leave here this morning. See, I think about to the people who were in captivity, those who who were taken from their homes, they were in captivity in, in Babylon, and to Daniel, it was said, in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. To those who were in captivity, to those who were longing for a home, it says there's coming a day when there is a kingdom, there is a king, and you're not going to be moving every other year. You're not always going to be transitioning, not knowing where you'll lay your head the next day. There is a king and a kingdom, and it is secure And so though we are travelers on this earth, and though we journey, and though there's brokenness, and though there's uncertainty, and though you don't know when you're going to return home, there is a kingdom that will not pass away. There is hope for the weary traveler in life. There is hope for those who are struggling, for those who feel alone. On that day, it says in Zechariah, the Lord will become king over the whole earth. The Lord alone, in his name alone. When you wonder how many different places are there, how do I know what's true? How do I know which path is right? There is one God, one Lord, one kingdom. And one day we will see him standing alone over all the other kingdoms and all the other paths. And it will be clear that he is our Lord. He is our God. And his kingdom is the only kingdom. It's like I long for that day, for that clarity to the unmarried teenage girl, Mary. The angel said to her, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. See, it was the promise to the Virgin Mary The kingdom will be the Lord's. To us, in the concluding words of Scripture, to the encouragement to today, to those who watch the news and worry, to those who feel beaten down, the same hope 
and promises are spoken in Revelation 11. The kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. In Revelation 19, hallelujah. Because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. There is no pride in our wealth, in our wisdom, in our warriors. There is no pride in our armies, in our nation. Our hope is in Christ alone who laid down his life to purchase our freedom and we belong to his kingdom because he alone is king. Let's pray.